Welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we will be discussing the 1996 Mount Everest disaster, where eight climbers perished whilst descending from the summit and being caught in a blizzard. This is a story that has lots of like lots of different sides and different aspects, and it's I've just done so much research and it's so interesting that basically this is going to be a two-part episode. So normally I release every second Tuesday, but don't worry, you don't need to wait until two weeks away. Uh, Part two for this disaster story will be up next Tuesday. It's one of these stories where it really like the different personas of people. So it's kind of like important to understand like who is who and and what their motivations are. But there's also a lot of players involved. So I'm not going to cover everyone that was involved. I'll cover the key players. But I want to just spend a little bit of time kind of explaining who was involved and their background and how they all came to be on Everest in 1996. Mount Everest stands tall at over 8,800 meters or 29,000 feet. And as I'm sure many of you will know, it is the tallest mountain in the world. And it's one of the 14 peaks, which is over 8,000 meters in height. Uh, It is the tallest mountain, but it it isn't the most technical in terms of the route that is taken and in terms of mountaineering skill. So it's not the hardest mountain to climb, basically. It is the tallest, but it's not the hardest mountain to climb. And uh, a lot of that is K2, and if you have listened to my K2 episode, which I think was episode two or three, uh, then you'll you'll remember the kind of complexity that they had in climbing that mountain. Everest is still a huge challenge, but it isn't as yeah, it isn't as tricky for for the climbers to to get up there. It was when I was reading it when when they said twenty nine thousand feet, like that is like how high a plane flies. Like, I, I obviously knew how tall Everest was, but I never really, like, put it into perspective in terms of, oh my gosh, that's actually how high it is. Like, it literally is the same height as a plane. And obviously, like, when you're in a plane, you don't want to be outside. <laughs> like, you want to be in your nice pressurized plane environment. So it kind of shows, it, it brought it to life, I guess, for me, how how really tall it is. So Sir Edmund Hillary was the first to ascend uh, Mount Everest along with Sherpa Tenzing Norgay. And they, when they did hit the summit, it was the kind of start of many expeditions up. And originally when people started climbing Everest, it was very much more the realm of, of mountaineers, you know, professional climbers. But it was many years later in the 80s, I believe, when a Texas millionaire pl- paid an expert climber to get him to the top of the mountain. So that was the first time where someone, kind of a, a non-professional climber, had basically paid in order to be guided up to the top of Everest. Once that had happened, it basically led to like a really rapid expansion of commercial climbing. So suddenly anyone who could afford it and had, you know, a pretty reasonable level of fitness, obviously you need to be pretty fit in order to just physically be able to make it, but you didn't need to be the most proficient climber, the most expert in terms of like techniques or anything like that you just needed yeah the money and to be fit enough to get on the expedition so lots of people joined these commercial expeditions and they're still going today but many of those people 
usually have done mountaineering experience, uh, but they have usually haven't summited other 8,000 meter uh, mountains and they don't necessarily yeah, have the experience to do it alone. Like they're very reliant on their guides and their Sherpas for, for, for getting them up Everest. So commercial climbing took off in the 1990s and the Nepalese government basically were, there was a lot of concern around like the number of people on Everest because you know, I read some interesting articles about like motivations of climbers and that kind of thing. And obviously climbing Everest is something that is very impressive and very, you know, it's it's good for the ego basically to kind of say that you've, you've climbed the biggest mountain in the world. And so there was, yeah, this kind of influx of people. And as as you may know, with the influx of people comes the influx of, of trash and other rubbish being left on the mountain. The government there tried to restrict this and tried to restrict the numbers so they have raised the cost of the climbing permits in order to try and stop climbers they did try and kind of constrain numbers in terms of how many people were allowed on the mountain at any one time uh, but that was soon got rid of because basically then everyone just went and climbed it from the other side in Tibet and they lost all the revenue that they were getting Basically, they just kind of kept upping and upping the price of the permits, but that hasn't turned people away. But it does mean that getting on an expedition to Everest means that it is a very pricey endeavor. And, you know, it's something people generally might only be able to afford once. So they put a lot of faith and effort into that one attempt that they get. So commercial climbing trips to Everest then, they cost on average $65,000, but anywhere up to $150,000. And you can can climb for less if if you're more of an independent climber, but uh, yeah, you're, you're paying for quite a significant amount really for for what you're doing and the usually what's included in that is is obviously the permits but they get professional guides so the professional guides uh, provide the climbing expertise they lead the clients up the mountain the trip itself also organizes the sherpas Uh, They make sure that the routes are set up and the fixed lines are on there. uh, And they also manage pretty much all of the logistics. So food, oxygen, setting up all of the different camps. Basically, everything is done for you when you're on one of these trips. All the clients needed to do was basically they had their own personal light backpack, which just had emergency equipment and that kind of thing in it. And they just have to carry that and make their way up and down the mountain. So before I get into the people involved, uh, there were a few key points about Everest and climbing Everest that I wanted to cover. I covered these a little bit in the K2 episode. Uh, So if you do want more information on them, then do go back to that one and listen to it. So I'll just kind of touch on them briefly here so that uh, we can be reminded of them. And uh, yeah, they're definitely important in this story as well. So when you go to climb Everest on a commercial expedition, like I've just talked through, uh, you need to go and you climb through different camps in order to acclimatize to the mountain. So we're going to talk a little bit more about altitude in the second episode, but basically because of the impacts of altitude on the body, it means you can't just like turn up at Everest and climb all the way to the top. <laughs> like you would just die, basically. You're just not able to do that. So you need to do it slowly so that your body can get used to having less oxygen in the air around you uh, so that then you're you're kind of physically capable of, of going up. And this usually takes quite a while. So it usually takes about six weeks in order to properly acclimatize yourself to 
the to the oxygen levels and what this involves is climbing up so the clients will climb up the mountain they'll spend some time at different altitudes on the mountain and then they'll climb down rest recuperate and then basically do it again and again climbing higher and higher each time And Everest is usually split into four camps. So there's usually four uh, sleeping points up the mountain. So on the first trips, they'll go up to camp one, stay stay some time in camp one, back down again. Next time, maybe camp one and maybe a a trip up to camp two, but then staying at camp one and then back down. And yeah, kind of hugely different combinations of that in order to really get ready for the mountain and the summit bid then what they'll do is from the when they do want a summit they'll get all the way to camp four and then they'll do the summit bid to and from camp four so the other important aspect to note around climbing is that they climb with sherpas who we've already mentioned so far so the sherpa people are from the high mountains in the himalayas And they make their living through supporting climbing, mostly. Uh, And because they've grown up in that high altitude, it means that they are more adept at managing the high peaks. So it just means that like naturally they're acclimatized to the low oxygen. So they're just kind of physically more able to climb. And then because it is really an, you know, an area that they've specialized in, a lot of them are very skilled climbers as well. They have roles at base camp where they support things like the food, management of the camp. Uh, But one of their most important roles is the roles that they do on the actual climb itself. So it's usually the Sherpas that will go up before clients and before the guides to fix the ropes. And they also climb carrying a lot of the equipment. So they'll usually carry extra equipment, they'll carry oxygen, they'll carry extra oxygen for the clients, uh, and they're there to really give aid if if anything goes wrong. And the Sherpas are managed by a what's called a, a Sirdar, I think. A Sirdar? Go with Siddhar. Um, they're managed by Siddhar, who basically manages all the other Sherpas. So there's ba- a base camp Siddhar and then a climbing Siddhar. And both of them determine, you know, help help manage all the other Sherpas that they have on there. It's, it's never great, but the guides are generally paid around five times as much as the Sherpas, despite doing very similar roles. Uh, but it's still very much seen, the, like climbing is very much seen as a profitable career in Nepal. And what the Sherpas are paid is generally at least five times the average salary of other people in Nepal. So it is a very popular career and one which a lot of people want to get into. And then finally, the last point before we get into the people just around climbing and Everest itself is the conversation we had on K2 as well around the debate around climbing with or without oxygen. So when you are above 8,000 meters, there's only one third of the oxygen as at sea level. So you are significantly less oxygen in the air and significantly less oxygen for your body to take up. And the effects of oxygen deprivation can be really intense. It can cause weakness, confusion. Yeah, it can make you very, very ill. And so this means that usually when you get to the very high peaks of the Himalayas, it means that you will often, and often in experienced climbers especially, 
they'll climb with oxygen. So that's basically oxygen tanks on the back, uh, which you carry, and then you would breathe through a regulator all the way up to the top. And generally, when we're talking about Everest, for most of the commercial expeditions, all of the clients were climbing with oxygen in terms of that summit bid. So basically, camp four and above, pretty much everyone who is climbing would require oxygen in order to make it to the top. Okay, on to the uh, different people that were involved then. And like I said, this can be a little bit confusing, but we'll, I'll try my best to, to keep us on track in terms of who's involved and what they've been doing. So let's go to 1996 now. And there were many expeditions on the mountain in that year. And one which we're going to focus in on was a commercial expedition run through a company called Adventure Consultants. And this was run by a New Zealander called Rob Hall. And Rob was an experienced mountaineer. He had been running expeditions for quite some time at that point, and he had summited Everest four times. And generally, he was very well respected at base camp. He had a lot of experience. He was often pulled in by different expeditions for, you know, his opinion on things. And he was, yeah, very well respected. Rob had been there the year before in 1995, but the expedition he had led wasn't able to make the summit that year. Uh, But before that, they generally had made the summit quite a few times. So he was coming into the 1996 season after a season where they didn't make it. And so they were very keen in this season in 1996 to make sure that they did hit the summit. Uh, And because of his experience and because he had done so many successful trips, he had a lot of demand for the places on his trip and he was able to charge, you know, a very reasonable amount per per person in order to uh, lead and guide clients up Everest. So also on the adventure consultant side, so we've got Rob Hall, who we've talked about so far. Uh, and he was accompanied by two other guides who would help him in terms of, you know, helping the clients climb up and down. And these were Mike Groom and Andy Harris. So Groom and Harris. And both of these guys were very experienced climbers. Groom had summited Everest previously. Uh, He had, though, lost a lot of his feet to frostbite a few years before, but he was a very accomplished climber and had lots of experience, including guiding. Harris, again, was very experienced, but he had not tried to climb Everest previously. Uh, But he, yeah, had lots of experience on other peaks, uh, also a Kiwi with Rob, uh, and, yeah, was very excited to, to lead the group in 1996. So on the adventure consultant side then, along with Hall, Harris and Groom, who were the guides, uh, they had eight clients and eight Sherpas who supported them. So in terms of the clients on the adventure consultant side, they had a mix of experience, but none had summited Everest before. One of the clients was actually a returning client from the year before, the 1995 trip, and he was called Doug Hansen. And so he had tried on the year before, but had not made it to the summit. And Hall had had to turn him around and send him back down. And 
he was really close, like really, really, you know, like literally could see the summit, but had to turn around and go back down. So he was back again in 1996 to, to really try and actually hit the summit that year. Um, And he was like a postal worker. So this was like a really, really big deal for him. You know, he had had to save up a lot of money and, and do a lot of, you know, dedication in order to come back on this trip. Many of the other climbers had climbed over 8,000 meters, but there was a real mix of, of experience and of fitness at this point. I won't go through all of the climbers, just highlight a few. So we had Doug Hansen, who we've said. Uh, we also had uh, Yasuko Namba, who was from Japan, and she was the oldest woman to try and summit the seven summits. Uh, which are the all of the tallest mountains. And Everest was actually the final one. Uh, so once she got that, she would get that record of being the oldest Japanese woman in order to, to do all of that. So she was very excited to be on the trip. We then had Beck Weathers, who was 49, and he was also attempting all of the summits. Uh, and then we finally, the, out of the ones I'm going to talk about, we had John Krakauer. And John was a very experienced mountaineer, but hadn't done any experience over 8,000 meters. And you may remember John, because I talked about him on the episode we did around Into the Wild on Chris McCandles. Um, sorry, Chris McCandless. And he was the journalist that wrote the book that we talked about then, but he was also on this expedition as a journalist in order to write about the expedition itself. So he was basically on a press trip and he had been paid and it had all been paid for through the magazine. And he was basically going to cover the trip, write articles about it, and venture consultants through Rob Hall were, were going to get a load of advertising and, and coverage in exchange. So summarizing that side, because I realize I've been through a few people there. So we've got adventure consultants. They are run by Rob Hall, who is a Kiwi. Uh, as he was accompanied by two guides, Mike Groom and Andy Harris. And then they had eight clients on, uh, some of which I've just mentioned. So the other key expedition that were on the mountain that year, which we wanted to cover, is Mountain Madness. So Mountain Madness was only formed for the, that climb in 1996. So this was their first year doing a commercial climb on Everest. And it was managed by an experienced guide called Scott Fisher. And he was an American. He was uh, quite loud, positive, outgoing, uh, you know, a lot of fun, basically. And he had climbed Everest quite a few times at that point and really wanted to make his way into commercial guiding and commercial leading of expeditions. So supporting Fisher again were two guides. So he was supported by Neil Beadleman and Anatoly Bukreev. And again, both of those were very skilled, loads of experience. Anatoly especially had made his way as a professional climber for years and years and uh, had been up Everest quite a few times before. So lots of experience in terms of guides and, and Sherpas on this team. Uh, they were a similar setup to Adventure Consultants. So they also took on eight clients and had eight Sherpas supporting them. And 
the clients on this team were generally a bit younger, generally maybe a little bit fitter compared to adventure consultants, but you know, all all were had had some experience. And so again, I'm not going to go through all eight of the clients on that side. I'll just touch on a few of them. So we had Charlotte Fox, who had summited two 8,000 meter mountains, uh, and she was accompanied by Tim Madsen, who hadn't climbed over 8,000, but had extensive experience. And then they were also joined by Sandy Pittman. And Pittman was uh, an American, uh, very wealthy socialite, basically. And But she was very experienced in terms of climbing. She had climbed to... Uh, she'd climbed six of the seven summits and she was actually covering the summit at the Everest uh, bid for NBC. So she was pho- basically phoning in updates every day from the climb and then they were being published online. Uh, and this was the first time that climbing was really like published and really updated like day by day at the time because obviously the internet was finding its feet feet in in 96 and so it was a really really interesting time for them and so what this means is that both teams effectively had a journalist on board so we had John on adventure consultants and then we had Pittman on uh, mountain madness both who were covering the climb and who would generate a lot of press and interest in the climb itself Uh, So all of the teams and um, all of the clients across both teams were paying. Uh, Generally, most of them were paying around, again, the average of 65,000. But there were some that were paying slightly less if they were potentially a returning climber. And so there was a real mix. But basically, everyone who had been in the group had been paying quite a lot to be there that year. I won't go through all the other groups that were on the base camp for that year. There were lots of them. Uh, But one that I will just highlight was there were a a Taiwanese team and they become important because they were also involved in the summit bid. And there was a general feeling at base camp that year that that team weren't as prepared maybe as some of the others uh, and, and a few people were kind of a bit worried about them and, and, and their readiness, I guess, in terms of trying to hit the summit. Okay, so hopefully um, you've kept up with all of the different names. I'm sure they'll become more familiar as uh, we go through. It's one of those things where like the first time I read uh, articles, I was like, oh, there's so many people involved. It's so confusing. But now I've read so much about it. I, I know all of them. So it's it's I probably take it for granted in terms of just saying names. So hopefully uh, I'll recap who they are um, and we can make sure that you, that people can keep up with them. So now I've introduced everyone, uh, let's talk a little bit about preparing for the preparing for the summit bid and what they all did to get ready uh, in order to hit the summit that year. So Basecamp was really busy uh, that year and they had lots of teams there that had been planning to summit and there had to be a lot of cooperation between the teams in order to decide when they would attempt to summit and and who was going when. And this was because uh, they didn't want to cause any bottlenecks, there didn't want to be any crowding on the summit and there didn't want to be any... um, Oh, there's a fly in here. I hope you can't hear it. Um, they didn't want to be any, any, any issues basically when when up high on the mountain because it is a really dangerous environment. And if you have seen, occasionally it comes up in the news every now and again, but there's always photos of like queues and queues of people on Everest, and it's really important that that doesn't happen. 
So Rob Hall, who ran Adventure Consultants, and Scott Fisher, who ran Mountain Madness, they made a joint agreement together that they would try and summit together on the same day, and they agreed on the 10th of May. And that was because generally uh, there's quite a short window for when Everest can be summited in the in the good weather. And it's usually kind of end of April through May. And so they decided that the 10th of May was, was the day. And it was a date that uh, Hall had summited previously. So kind of seen as, as a good luck thing. Um, and they, they thought that that was the best time to go. That was all agreed on, and it was also agreed uh, with the other teams at base camp that that was their window, uh, and no one else would climb on that day. So prior to the clients and everyone getting to base camp, uh, the guides and Sherpas all got there and started setting things up, and they spent weeks getting all of the supplies through to base camp. So in order to get to Everest base camp, it's quite a long trek from some of the nearby towns, and it relies on yaks uh, in order to carry a lot of the equipment. So they use like yak trains where basically they yeah, load them all up and then and then get trekking over to base camp. And it can take, you know, seven to 10 days in order to get there. So it is a very long journey in order to get there and get set up. Yeah, so they'd set up base camp, uh, but both teams had struggled to get a large amount of oxygen. So there wasn't a huge amount of supply of oxygen for mountaineering at the time. And because they were trying to climb the very higher peaks, it was important for them to get oxygen tanks that were quite light. uh, Because if you had to carry two of them and then hike all the way up to the top, pounds of weight made a huge amount of difference. So they wanted these specific lighter oxygen tanks and there really was a limited supply of them. And so they did uh, manage to get oxygen, thankfully, and they ended up porting it to base camp. But what it meant was that they really only had enough oxygen to support one attempt at the summit. And that becomes important. So the base camp was set up, set up by base camp managers and the clients all arrived and they started doing their um, acclimatizing training. And in order to do this types of training, they first head up to camp one. But unfortunately, one of the most dangerous parts of Mount Everest is actually the the bit of the mountain between base camp and camp one. And that's because it's basically a giant glacier or what they call the Kumbu Icefall. And this icefall is, it's, I mean, as it says, it's, it's a giant glacier, which means that it is kind of constantly shifting and moving and it's just not a very stable part of the mountain. And this has led to a lot of accidents and deaths in the past. What they do is that the the teams at base camp basically work together to try and forge a route through the uh, icefall. And then everyone uses that route that has kind of been deemed as, as the safest route. And usually one team puts it together and then all the other teams pay in order to use that route. And I mean, it sounds intense in terms of setting up that route. There's usually like 60 to 70 uh, metal ladders put on. And those ladders, you know, if you've watched anything on mountaineering, when you see them like walking over this like aluminium ladder and it just looks like, oh, my worst nightmare, to be honest, with like a tiny rope attached. That's basically what they were doing. So uh, ladders that went over cracks, but also ladders in order to kind of get them up different bits of ice.
two expeditions worked very differently. Rob Hall of Adventure Consultants was much more regimented and he had been on the mountain quite a lot beforehand and he really kept the group of climbers together uh, and he basically like organized all of the trips that they did up and down the mountain. So they consistently headed up and down uh, and they had a set amount of days rest in between each each attempt. Whereas Fisher took a different approach and was a lot more, a lot less strict and a lot more open in terms of, of the training and kind of left it more into the hands of the climbers in order to, to manage their acclimatizing. So they, he basically let his clients go up and down the mountain as, as, as they liked uh, and often in smaller groups. So it may only be, you know, two or three people that might be climbing with a guide and some Sherpas in each day. But it does mean, did mean on, on Fisher's team, it was potentially harder to to know how much time each of them had spent at the really high altitudes. Uh, whereas on Hall's team, it was very clear they all knew how long they had spent up there, and they all knew that they were they were pretty ready for the summit. And through all of this um, acclimatizing, the guides are really there to kind of check the clients and check to see if they're ready to to get higher and higher. Obviously, altitude impacts people really differently, and it's not necessarily a measure of fitness as to how altitude will impact you. You know, you can be really, really fit, but be horribly incapacitated by altitude. And you can have some people that aren't as fit that, you know, have no side effects or anything like that. So the guides and 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 the expedition leaders are really there to try and understand how how the how the clients are feeling and whether they're ready to go. And they really weren't afraid of of turning people around and sending them back down if they thought they needed it. One of the key things with altitude is that it often makes you quite confused and it makes you potentially make silly decisions. And so it can be quite difficult to turn people around, but the guides are, are very clear that, you know, it's about getting up and down the mountain, not just up it. Let's fast forward now towards the summit day. So they have been at base camp now for for quite some time doing their acclimatization uh, hikes up and down the mountain and it was getting closer and closer to May 10th. And when it came to that period around the summit day, some of the team decided that it wasn't wasn't for them. One of Fisher's group, uh, Pete Schoening, who was 68, and he had really suffered. He, he had done a lot of climbing and a climb like K2 and lots of others but he had been really suffering with the altitude uh, and was having to use a lot of oxygen. So he decided to, to sit it out, uh, but everyone else continued on. And so the plan was for both teams to climb to Camp 2, and then they would spend two nights at Camp 2 from the 6th to the 8th of May. Then on the 8th, they'd head up to Camp 4, stay overnight, and then try and hit the summit on the 10th. But on the 7th, uh, so after they had made the climb up to cl- to Camp 2, uh, one of Fisher's clients on Mountain Madness really started suffering badly from altitude sickness uh, and they made the decision to descend. And that meant that Fisher had to take that client down and then he had to climb back up to Camp 2. So that was, if, if, the, if you're going up to Camp 234, you the clients and the guides should really be resting after that so you should really be resting for a day or two before you then attempt to do a climb but this meant because they were trying to hit this date that Fisher had to do this like quite a lot of additional exertion which he wasn't really expecting 
So at this point, we are at eight clients on Hall's team who are attempting to summit and six on Fisher's team who are ready to push. On the way up the mountain then from camp two to camp four, the teams actually passed uh, an IMAX team. So there was a a group of climbers on the mountain that year who were filming for an IMAX movie about Everest. And they had two like of the most experienced climbers in the world on the mountain in their team. And they were descending and, and that was a bit odd, but that IMAX team basically decided to abandon their that summit attempt because they didn't think the weather was stable enough and they didn't think it was going to clear for, for long enough in order to make the summit. So they decided to come down. But despite this and, and, you know, the expedition leaders on both sides all knew each other, so I'm sure they had many conversations. But despite that, Hall and Fisher felt it was all okay and that they would continue up to Camp 4. On the 9th of May then, they've made it up to Camp 4 by this point. And the Taiwanese team, who I mentioned earlier, they weren't expecting to summit, but they had also made their way up to Camp 4 and suddenly announced that they would also be trying to summit on the same day. And so Camp 4 is at the highest highest camp before hitting the summit and it's basically there's like basically like a flat col they call it where they're able to pitch the tents and they're able to uh, have a bit of of be a bit sheltered from all of the wind and other other bits and pieces that are coming around but it is surrounded by glaciers and ice and you know very steep faces all around that camp And unfortunately, on the 9th, one of the Taiwanese climbers came out of his tent um, and he didn't have his crampons on, which are the um, like spiky things you attach to to your shoes. And he unfortunately slipped down a crevasse pretty much straight away. Um, And Sherpas worked really hard to pull him out uh, on on ropes, but unfortunately he died very soon after uh, from internal injuries that he got from the fall. And that really obviously set a very somber and quite depressing mood on the camp on the day right before their summit. So at this point, they're in camp for... It's really not enjoyable. (laughs) Um, Many of the climbers were using oxygen just in the tents themselves because they felt so terrible. Uh, Because of the altitude and the oxygen problems, it was hard for any of the climbers to eat or sleep. They just kind of like lay there in a stupor and they were just all desperate to summit as soon as possible (laughs) so that then they could make their way down. So getting towards the summit date then, on the night of the 9th of May, it was agreed that two of the Sherpas, one from each team, so one from Adventure Consultants, one from Mountain Madness, would set off early and set up the fixed ropes uh, and make sure that they, they were in place. And basically the fixed ropes just mean that there's no delays when you're climbing up and it allows the clients to clip onto these fixed ropes and then continue up the mountain it's really it's really important for safety and generally it it, you're not allowed to keep climbing if the fixed ropes aren't there and so it was decided these two sherpas would set off early and uh, they would do uh, more fixed ropes especially around some of the quite tricky areas of this summit bid Uh, there's one area called the hillary step which is basically like a a rock face uh, which is very much a bottleneck on the on the climb and only one person can climb it at a time and it is it is quite a dangerous area but 
Unfortunately, we're not totally sure why, uh, but for some reason, this didn't happen. So Sherpas did not go out before the rest of the clients. It was thought that maybe there had been some other climbers at Camp 4 who had attempted to summit in the days previously and they had stated that they had put ropes in place. So I think that they, everyone thought that maybe the ropes had already been done so they decided not to go out but unfortunately that was incorrect and there there were no ropes available in the areas that they needed them. So around comes midnight on the 10th and the climbers are now ready to climb. So they start at midnight and hopefully make it up there by about lunchtime. So the plan was for the adventure consultants Rob Hall's team to climb together and then they would be followed by the Mountain Madness team. And basically all of the guides and the Sherpas that were climbing with them would be kind of dotted throughout that group. So there'll be, you know, at regular intervals. So there's lots of guides, Sherpas around, lots of support for the climbers. And it was generally accepted that they would have an enforced turnaround time around 1 to 2 p.m. But it would be up to the expedition leaders to really call exactly what time that would be. Uh, And that meant that no matter where you were on the mountain, even if you were like literally 100 feet away from the top, you turned around. And that was, you you know, there was no arguing about it. Once it was determined to be turnaround time, you turned around and started to descend. So it was generally accepted that there'd be a turnaround around 1 to 2 p.m. Uh, and that just meant that they'd be able to get back to camp for with enough daylight and, and, and safely. And the idea was that Scott Fisher, the um, leader of Mountain Madness, he would climb last. And basically, because he's such a strong climber and such an experienced guide, as he caught up to slower client climbers, he would basically turn them around. So because he was last, if he was overtaking anyone, he knew that they would not make it to the summit in time. So he would go up, turn them around, and then send them down. And that was the plan. So they had a pretty, pretty solid plan in place in terms of getting people up and then getting them down in time. Let's start the summit bit then. They all set off, like I said, at midnight. Uh, But the first issue came in that people were quite slow. And this, you know, is a multitude of factors, altitude, experience, acclimatization. You just don't know. It's probably just a, a combination of all of it. But it did mean that some climbers were slow and this very much slowed other faster climbers down. So adventure consultants wanted to climb climb as a group, which meant that the faster climbers were kind of held back. And it meant that people often had to stop and wait for, for other people in the group to come back. And it meant that they, in that waiting period, you know, were getting really cold and were, um, you know, it, it really wasn't good for their climb. There was also a bit of a strange incident at the beginning of this climb. And It happened where one of the strongest Sherpas who worked for Scott Fisher basically started short roping Sandy Pittman. And what short roping means is essentially they like put a rope around you and like pull you up the mountain. And usually it's done for like weak climbers, but it's often done, you know, for um, like an emergency situations when someone literally cannot make it any further. But for some reason, he, he decided to start Yeah, short roping Sandy Pittman, the journalist, and helping her get up the mountain. And there's been a lot of debate around this, around why he did it, how long he did it for, all of that kind of thing. But it was generally felt that there was a lot of pressure within Mountain Madness to make sure Pittman got to the summit because she was covering it for the journalists, uh, because she was, yeah, phoning in updates. They felt like 
yeah, they, they really needed to get her up there. And so potentially that's why the Sherpa did it because he felt that, you know, it had a lot of pressure, really wanted to get him up. But that became a problem because he was one of the strongest Sherpas. After he did this short roping attempt, he basically used up all of his energy. So he wasn't then able to get to the front of the queue. He wasn't then able to kind of help with the ropes or anything like that. So a, a little incident and a strange one, but one that potentially had a lot of, of ongoing impact. So the climbers kept going and eventually it all came to a halt um, as they approached nearer the summit. So they got to the Hillary step and they, which is, like I said, like quite a difficult bit of the climb. And when they got to the Hillary step, it was then suddenly clear that there were no fixed ropes in place. And this was a serious problem as the Sherpas who were meant to go ahead hadn't for what we talked about earlier. But it meant that basically everyone had to stop and wait whilst climbers went and put up the ropes. And it's generally thought that that took over two hours for, for of delays in terms of people just like waiting and queuing for the ropes to be done. And so that really impacted them in terms of, again, sitting and waiting, really not good for, for cold, really not good for the amount of oxygen that they had. Uh, and it just meant that then there was basically gridlock because then they had to wait for each climber to make their way up and everyone else was just sitting and waiting. So around this time with that gridlock, four of the climbers decided they'd had enough and, and they knew they weren't going to be able to get up and down uh, in the time needed. So four of them turned around uh, and descended. Uh, they were a bit worried about running out of the oxygen that they were carrying and they all turned and successfully made it back to camp four. Uh, but the rest of the climbers continued. Their oxygen, like I said, was running low. They had enough oxygen for like a set number of hours. So I think they had, you know, something like 18 hours worth of oxygen. But because of these delays, they were potentially getting through the oxygen quicker than they expected to. But they continued up. They waited for the, for the ropes to be fixed and then, and then made it up. Anatoly, who was the mountain madness guide, he was the first to hit the summit and he made the summit around 1.10 p.m. And he was, like I mentioned before, a really, really experienced climber. He was climbing without oxygen uh, and, and yeah, had, had hit it first. And he was followed by other strong climbers around 2 p.m. So that included uh, Krakauer, the journalist, um, and the other guides made it up around then uh, with a few other clients. You know, and, and considering we're talking turnaround time at 1-2, uh, what potentially should have happened was that no one else would summit. But following around 3 p.m., the majority of the clients, other than Doug Hansen and Scott Fisher, summited. So basically by 3 p.m., everyone who is still in the summit group had made it to the top, except for Doug and ex except for Fisher. Rob Hall, who was the expedition leader, uh, he made it to the summit, but he descended to find Hansen. And Hansen was really close to the summit again, similar to when they he had been there the previous year. And Rob agreed to take him to the summit. And that meant that they summited again around 4 p.m. And Fisher also joined them around that time. And as you can tell, this was hours after their planned turnaround time. 
as all of them hit the top of the peak and turned around, what they started noticing was that clouds had started rolling in and the clear day that they had started with was suddenly becoming shrouded in cloud. The wind was picking up um, and, and it wasn't starting to look good. And so by the next morning, five of the climbers would have perished and many more would be injured. But why were they summiting so late and what was driving them up the mountain? We'll pick all of that up next time. We're going to leave you on a literal cliffhanger um, with everyone up the top of the mountain um, and we'll we'll pick up the, the journey down in the next episode. I just wanted to end quickly on a quote in one of the books that I read that I thought was really good just to set the scene in terms of why they were summiting and why they potentially were, were summiting quite late. And this was by someone called Hornbean. And he says, I looked down. Descent was totally unappetizing. Too much labor, too many sleepless nights, and too many dreams had been invested to bring us this far. We couldn't come back for another try next weekend. To go down, even if we could have, would be descending to a future marked by one huge question. What might have been? And I thought, yeah, I thought that was a very good quote to kind of put their, put their thinking into context. So yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close it there, mainly because this has already become a really long episode, even for part one. Yeah, I think if I'd done it all in one, it would be very long. Um, but thank you so much for listening. Like I said, come back next week, next Tuesday, to, to carry on and, and see what happens next. Uh, I'll go through all of the references and stuff that I uh, used at the end of the next episode, but just very quickly to highlight the two books that I'll talk more about next time. Uh, Into Thin Air by John Krakauer and The Climb, which was by Anatoly Bukri. Uh, I read both of those both excellent excellent books I'll talk a little bit more about them in the next one but if you are desperate to find out what happens or desperate to read more about it then definitely uh, check those out so thank you very much for listening please do follow uh, subscribe rate all of those kinds of things uh, and also do find me on Instagram I'm at when it goes wrong pod um, and I'm posting a lot more on there about behind the scenes and upcoming episodes everything like that uh, and I would love to hear your thoughts and hear any suggestions for future episodes 